should be an incentive for us when we think about such things to get in a right relationship with God. That's part of the purpose of what happened yesterday at a great expense to others. There are other reasons, I'm sure, which will remain unanswered or unrevealed to us in this life. What we do know is we have a sovereign God whom we love and whom we can trust to sort all this out. I was thinking also about what are we to do, not just how are we to process what's happened, but what are we to do? We need to pray, don't we? The Bible says, if my people were called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. We need to pray for forgiveness in our own hearts. Not in a general sense, but specifically, if our heart has been wrong toward people who have a different racial background than we. We need to be praying for those people who've lost loved ones for their comfort and to pray for understanding. God promises if we ask for understanding, He will provide such understanding. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. It's a time of drawing near to God. We already talked about that. And turn from their wicked way. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. We need to look into our own hearts. And we need to be warned not to take matters into our own hands in personal relationships or in broader sense. Patrick Crucius, we know very little about him, but what we do know is that he was a man who was very misguided. And the Bible says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. His work was satanic. Satan is a murderer and has been from the beginning. And quite frankly, all murder is prompted by the devil. People who do the murdering, they are responsible. But we need to also understand that God has placed government in order to exercise justice in situations like this. The Bible says in Romans 13 that the government is God's servant for our good. The government is God's servant given the responsibility to execute vengeance on those who have been the purveyors of evil like Mr. Crucius. So we need to Ask God to help us to restrain ourselves. And in the event that we have been biased toward people, prejudiced toward people, then we need to remember what the Word of God says in Galatians 3, verse 28. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither free nor slave. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And we know there are people who aren't in Christ in El Paso. And that's our opportunity. Mike spoken about it. It's so important that we are looking for those people who are in our spheres whom we can minister to the gospel of
join other believers in our city, at First Baptist Church. At 6 o'clock, there's going to be a prayer meeting devoted to pray for all these things that we are aware of need pray. So I encourage you, I'm going to be there. Looking forward to being a part of that. I hope you do too. It's, it's First Baptist Church at 6 o'clock this evening. Would you bow your heads? Thank you, Lord.
variations between the copies that we have, we don't even know if we have what they wrote. So here I am, staring at the wall, going, I don't even know what to say to him. I have no clue how to answer this. I had studied other answers in the past, but this one challenged me. Do, do I have what they wrote? Has it been corrupted? Did the New Testament books, were they decided on way later? And so, I was still a believer, but I, I kind of thought, well, maybe, maybe I can just separate where the spiritual truths are in here. It's kind of like Aesop's fables. We have, like, morals, but you're not really grounding it in anything historical, right? And so, I began to think much in those categories when it came to Scripture. Yet, we see that the Bible is, the Bible describes to us that it is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about all scripture is God breathed. God is the ultimate source and author of scripture. It says it's reliable and inerrant. Psalm 119, 160 says the entirety of your word is true. And many other scriptures support that claim as well. And the word is to be proclaimed. Matthew 28 says go out and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. Acts 26, which we'll look at in a little bit, communicates this truth. Yet here I am saying, well, maybe it doesn't really mean it when it's using historical terms like day, evening, first, second day. Maybe that doesn't mean day. Maybe this is kind of poetic. Maybe Genesis isn't history. Maybe the Gospels doesn't have to get everything accurate, but maybe it just has separate spiritual truths. And it's not historically true. So what happens with my engagement with people at that point? There's a word that we use a lot in, in the church body, and it's a good word. It's called evangelism. And it really comes from originally this understanding of, hey, an enemy has been defeated, has been conquered. Now, in response to this, there's a response that is demanded in light of this news. An enemy is defeated, you have to live in light of this news. And so they took that term and, and attached it to our understanding that it's a fuller understanding of the enemy of sin and death has been defeated in the person and work of Jesus it demands a response. It's a bold proclamation of the gospel. Evangelism demands a response. But so when I have a view of the word that I don't think it's that authoritative, that it's not my ultimate standard of engagement with people, how am I going to engage with people? I wouldn't call it the traditional view of evangelism anymore. I would call it evangelism. <laughs> you think of jelly, it's kind of sloppy, not really solid. Now, I would say evangelism, what the distinctions of that are, it's, it's a dis distortion of the bold proclamation of God's word. And they water down the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and God's justice, and what all the cross represents in the atonement of Jesus. It waters that down, and it may actually take some grains of truth, and, but it emphasizes those so much that we miss out on the core elements of the gospel. We may say, well, people don't really need doctrine. They don't need truth. They don't need apologetics, which is not apologizing to people. It's making a defense for Christianity. It comes from the Greek word, apologia. Then the evangelism will say, people don't need that. They don't need truth. They don't need answers. They just, they just need a friend. They just need to be served and loved, which is true. They do need to be served and loved. The problem is in the emphasis, right? It's separating truth from love. First Corinthians 13 says... Love delights in truth. Why do we separate those? And in the end, you boil it down and falsely diagnoses man's greatest problem is really just a lack of friendship or is a lack of uh, feeling welcomed. 
Which those things are the implication of sinful hearts. They don't welcome people in. But the core issue of the gospel is that we are sinners against a holy and just God, right? And that only the person and work of Jesus can pay for that sin towards God. Not just that people need to be served. One of the quotes that is used a lot to encapsulate evangelism is, Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. But the gospel is not how we live, the gospel is how Jesus has lived for us, right? The gospel is a proclamation, it does require using words. Now, our message should match our actions. Don't get me wrong and don't mishear me. Yet, we cannot water down the bold proclamation. And we see that particularly in the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. Acts 26, we'll pick up on verse 19. And for a recap of the um, portion before that, we see Paul on trial, and he's brought before King Agrippa, and you can see when you read this whole chapter, he's excited about this. Why? He knows that God is sovereign over these circumstances. God has placed him here for the opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel. He begins by sharing his testimony. I was an enemy of the gospel. I was a Pharisee. I persecuted those who proclaimed Jesus. Yet here I am. You know this. You know my history. You know what has happened. And he picks up in verse 19 of chapter 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Amen. What do you notice if you had to encapsulate Paul's engagement with people? Paul's engagement, you could say in three ways. He was bold, he was reasonable. He says, I'm speaking the truth, and it's rational. And he was focused. He said, I will speak nothing on what Christ has fulfilled. In the Old Testament scriptures, he speaks on that. He's focused on that. And I want to use this as a model um, of how we can engage with others. And I want to give you um, five reasons why we can trust the New Testament documents. And these five reasons all begin with the letter E. Um, you can write these down and we'll recap them later. We have early testimony or early sources from the New Testament documents, we have eyewitness details. Number three, we have extra-biblical um, writers that confirm the New Testament. We have expected testimony or expected predictions. 
and we have excruciating deaths um, that all confirm why we can trust, particularly the New Testament. Now, if the New Testament is true, you could argue you get the Old Testament thrown in for a bonus. Why? Because Jesus spoke as if it was real and true history. He said, in the beginning, when God made him male and female, he refers to the prophets, he refers to Jonah, as if he was a real historical person, right? And so if the New Testament is true, everything Jesus said and spoke of as true also is immediately thrown in. Luke 24 confirms that Jesus spoke of how all the Old Testament, its goal was ultimately to point to him. So we'll start with the early testimony. This is one of the most important ones, and we'll spend most of our time on this particular point. Why is it so important? My parts have talked about, actually, this book is one of my favorite books, uh, besides the Bible, of course, uh, because it tells of, a, of an engagement with David Wood and Abdel Qureshi, and there are many conversations, and where he was at processing these, these difficult topics. He, they're taught in Islam, the New Testament has been corrupted. That's actually what most cults say as well, the New Testament is being corrupted, therefore we can enter an extra biblical idea, an extra revelation of how we have a better understanding of how you're supposed to understand it. So they're going to say, looking at this timeline, this is a key thing to understand. Why do you think it's corrupted? Now I'm going to make the case that most, if not all, of the New Testament was written before 70 AD. And why do I say that? Well, for example, if someone was writing the history of New York City and they wrote the history of New York City and they did not include 9-11, that wouldn't even get published today. That doesn't make sense. Or if you read a book that did not include it, you would say it might have been published in 1999, right? That seems like a reasonable conclusion. Now, if the New Testament authors did not mention the destruction of the uh, temple in Jerusalem, you would think the same thing. Then they probably wrote before AD 70, right? This seems reasonable, especially because Jesus predicted it. And Matthew goes to great lengths they say, according to the scriptures, this was fulfilled. But why would he leave that out unless it was written before the destruction of the temple? So if that's the case, I think from several other reasons we'll show you um, why we can date things early and how, how early. Now here's the issue. We have 33 AD, which is the resurrection of Jesus, right? 33 AD. The closer we get to 33 AD, the, the more reliable the eyewitness testimony is going to be, right? Closer to the event that it actually happened. That's really good. We want it close um, if, we have, if we want reliable documents. So we can date through um, many different sources that Paul probably died around 64 AD, and Peter as well. But the book of Acts doesn't mention their deaths, so that's also another reason we can probably date it before AD 64. Another interesting thing related to Paul's timeline, we found an inscription um, that confirms a character that was brought up in Acts 18, Galileo. And he was a proconsul at that time in AD 51. And then in 52, it um, has him in another position, but it fits right on the timeline of what Scripture says about Paul. Now we have uh, James was also one of those significant um, figures not mentioned in the book of Acts. Now James, we're talking about James, a half-brother of Jesus, uh, was not mentioned as being martyred. But we know from Josephus and another historian, Agassippus, that it was around AD 62. Now, who wrote Acts? It was Luke. Now, that means both Luke and Acts had to have been written before AD 62. We can push it even further earlier before that. Now, we can also pinpoint, knowing Paul's timeline, that 1 Corinthians was written around 55. Now, if 1 Corinthians was written there, but 1 Corinthians is quoting from 
the Gospel of Luke, then which one came first? Luke, right? Luke had to come before that. And here's, there's many other examples. Here's one we can show you. This Luke chapter 22. So 22. Here's where it talks about the Lord's Supper, which we took recently. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians. Nearly identical wording. And it's only worded like that in the Gospel of Luke. Nearly identical in 1 Corinthians. And he's using the words, what you have received, what has been delivered. Many scholars say, when these words appear together, you're knowing this is being traced to something that was very early. It was probably traced to something like an oral tradition, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. So that means, 1 Corinthians is borrowing from Luke. Then Luke was written clearly before that. Luke was written before 55 AD. But here's also the issue. We have other Gospels, there's four of them. Um, particularly Matthew and Mark, we know were written before Luke. Why? Because Luke was quoting from those. We even have, I believe it was Papias, who makes reference that Mark was uh, connected with Peter, and that was uh, recording Peter's gospel, and then he mentions that Luke wrote an orderly account, saying Luke had the historical chronology right, and he attaches that to Luke, which means if he had a chronological, the timeline right, Mark was correct, maybe the timeline wasn't the same, he was Reporting accurate details, but not the orderly timeline. In Luke chapter 1, you see that uh, mentioned right there. It means Luke came later in Mark and Matthew before that. So if they're around the 50s, then you have a very early gospel writing, right? It's close to 33 AD. Is that, you think that's around the timeline when eyewitnesses are around? You think the disciples were still around in the 50s? Absolutely. We just said this blog died in the 60s, somewhere here. Now, what we can trace even earlier is we call the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. Delivered to you of first importance that Christ Jesus died and was buried according to the scriptures. We read that section. And they can date that almost, some would say, almost within years of the resurrection. There's about 41 oral traditions. Now, a lot of times, what we say right here, oral tradition, people will say all the stories can change them. Oral tradition is not reliable. Today, all we have to do is, here's an event happening. Oh, get a selfie. We know what happened. Didn't happen on Facebook, did it even happen? <laughs> but it's an oral culture. We had people memorizing the whole first five books of the Bible. So you better believe if they're trained in that and have memory devices to get things down, especially if you see some of our, our kids in homeschool groups, they've memorized large chunks of stuff. My daughter knows like all the parts of the cell, and I'm like, man, I need to go back to school. <laughs> She's got stuff down. And so if they're memorizing that, it's not like what they traditionally say, the telephone game. I stay here, I whisper in someone's ear on this side of the room and say the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year. We get all the way over here and it's like the Steelers are going to destroy the Cowboys. <laughs> That's not the same story. Not the same at all. Drew's crying somewhere right now. Um, it, it's not like that. It's more like if I say something to everyone here and I say the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year and then I ask Pastor Mike, like, what did I say? And he says, no, the Cowboys aren't going to win. And like, no, someone else can cross-examine what he said and correct him, right? Because we all heard it. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, well, there's 500 witnesses, and he lists up other people by name. It's closer to that. Additionally, you think of, can anybody remember what they were eating last Thursday for lunch? I have no idea. I have to really think about it. But what you were doing during 9-11, you're going to remember that, right? That's an impact event. I remember around like 7.37 in the morning, we stopped marching band practice, we heard that there was a horrible act committed against our country, and two planes had flown into the towers. 
And I remember all that whole morning, those impact events. Why is it that we can remember some things and not others? Because not all memories are created equal. And you better believe if someone was walking on water, you're going to remember that. <laughs> They're performing miracles, seeing the dead raise to life like Lazarus. That's an impact event. These memories are going to be unique in the disciples' life. So, a lot of times, we hear about, oh, we have a large amount of copies of the New Testament. And I never truly understood why that matters until uh, several years ago. Because I'm like, well, we have more. More is better, right? Good. And now, we think, why is it so important? Well, Mark Ehrman, who was one of the scholars of True Mia, if you look in the Christian section in Barnes & Noble, you'll see a bunch of his books that say, um, Jesus misquoted, or he'll make the case that it's been corrupted. The New Testament's been corrupted. Why? Because of all these copies, there's a few differences. So do we know if we have the original? Now, the large number of copies matters. Same thing. If I write on a paper, and I say, you get, you get to look at it. It's not a perfect analogy. But if I write on a paper, and you write down what I wrote, but then we have about 300 copies, and one person has a word opportunity, we can compare, we can understand what the original said, right? That's why so many copies matter. The more copies we have, the less chance of a corrupt text. We can understand. And how many uh, copies do we have? People that I think I'm going to skip one. Um, we have, if fragments within decades of its composition, complete books within close to 100 years, complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament within 300 years. And so that's really good. Right? And here's another example of the, the type of thing, what we mean, why copies matter. The original message is God is just, and the justifier for one who has faith in Jesus. But you see in copy one, two, three, and four, and there's a little difference. You see that you notice it? And take a second and look at those. But no one's going to be arguing in here. We have no clue what the original was, right? This is why more copies, the better we can understand. And it's actually really good that God and his providence saw that we would have many copies. And I'm going to show you how many copies um, we have. And this is um, one of the earliest ones, called P52, it's known as the John Ryland's fragment of John 18. Now here's where they fall on the timeline. You see around 100, close to 200, and then full books around the 330, 325, 350 timeline. You don't have to know all those names, but so you see where it falls on the timeline. Now, what we have in comparison, now we had to take the slide out because it was a little dark. So I'll explain. And in comparison to other ancient documents, where does the New Testament fall? So we have the Demosthenes and Herodotus. Between the gap between the first original surviving copy and the author, the gap between that is about 1,400 years between both of them. So this is going to represent that. Between Plato, about 1,200 years. And about seven manuscripts in existence. Tacitus, one of the greatest Roman historians. The gap between the earliest copy and when he was still alive, around 1,000 years. Uh, Pliny is about 750 years. We have Homer, the Iliad, most students read it, 500 years. Now where do you think the New Testament falls? Oh, by that trend, it's going to be 200? No, we're around 25 years from when one of the last New Testament authors, most likely John, was still alive in our earliest fragment, P52. 25 years! And then how many actual manuscripts do we have? The New Testament, we have around 5,856. You stack all those together, it's like around a mile high. 
you stack all the other ancient manuscripts together, it's almost as tall as me. Well, it's actually three feet. You stack all of them around there. You stack all of what we have with the other manuscripts. We apply the same standard to the New Testament that they do to other ancient manuscripts. You wouldn't even question the reliability of the New Testament documents. The only reason you would is because of bias against the evidence, right? The only reason you would, because it's embarrassing how many we have. And that's just in Greek. We have Coptic and many other um, versions as well. So we have a very early um, manuscript. Now, Bart Ehrman, they say, well, we don't have the originals. Look at this timeline. You guys only have them. Wait, 100, 200, some fragments. We don't have the originals. So how do you know it hasn't changed between um, Seth, when the last um, disciple, John, maybe in the late first century, died and from the earliest fragments. How do you know if someone didn't just write something different, right? It's one of the big arguments. Again, the Muslims are going to say, Mormons, that there was a total apostasy and things fell away. We don't have actually what was written. So therefore, enter new truth and new revelation. Now, this uh, objection I don't think is actually very great. And here's what I'm going to show you. Two good reasons. Well, one is these guys called Grenfell and Hunt. have cool-sounding names. And they also... They, they went digging around in these discard piles in Egypt. And this really interesting sounding name, uh, I'll show you where it's at. It's right there. On the, and now this is, I don't know if I'm saying this right, I'm sure someone will correct me later. Oxyrhynchus. Everybody say that. Oxyrhynchus. Yeah, there. That sounds very scholarly. It must be right. So, Oxyrhynchus, that's where they found. They found these, <clears throat> these discard, the discard pile in these 4th and 5th century. Uh, Pile these ancient library discard pile. What they found in there was first and second century documents. And what does that prove? If they were around for that many years before they were discarded, the original manuscripts can last a long time, right? And this was found in 1890 or 1900s. And there's about there's thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. They're still sorting through to this day. So this is a career. They need help. They're still sorting through these, and they just recently found out the implications of this right here. So this means, going back, these little fragments all the way to full books we have, around 100 to 300. What, is, what did they find? Grenfell and Hunt? First and second century, all the way to fourth and fifth century. That means the fragments we have could be direct witnesses to the original manuscripts. Oh, sorry, let me go back. To direct witnesses to the original manuscripts. So what we have was still around when the originals were around. How do I know that? I got a quote by actually Tertullian, a little typo. Said, you are ready to exercise your own authority, run over to the apostolic churches where their own authentic writings are read. It was written around 180 AD. So the, the originals were still around, and we know that they can last between 200, maybe 300 years. So it's not a problem. So this claim of all the originals are gone. You can rest your, your heart at ease and be confident. We have, we do have what they wrote. Now we also, um, we have at least almost 50% of 8,000 New Testament verses are in our manuscripts before 225 AD. And even if we didn't have the New Testament, we have all our church fathers. We call them church fathers. They were the leaders at the beginning of the church. The second, third, fourth, fifth generation disciples from the original apostles. They're quoting 36,000 quotations of the New Testament. You'd still have to deal with the person of Jesus. And, we, and you know what's interesting? It lines up with what we have in the Gospels. Now in Luke, we have our second point here. Our eyewitness <coughs> testimony Verify. Luke 3, um, 1 through 2, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Italy, of Chaconias, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of 
something up, you do not want to list people who can be tested against like political leaders, right? But he's putting these people in here, and it's kind of like, bring it. Let's, if this is true, I have nothing to worry about. You know what? All eight leaders have been confirmed to be in that position during AD 29. And here's a quick list of over 30 leaders that have been confirmed through different historians, extra biblical historians. Um, all of these leaders throughout the Bible have been confirmed um, in there. So there, there's, not any, there's not any mistakes when it mentions historical figures when it comes to Scripture. It's entirely accurate. And we have a couple we'll, we'll get to real quick here. There's things that have been confirmed, eyewitness details through archaeology of the existence of Pilate, um, Paul of Bethesda, Paul of Salome, Caiaphas, um, crucifixion, and a very interesting one about Lazarus. So, we have, right here is Pontius Pilate, this inscription referring to him, and found in 1961, a limestone discovered had his name on it. It was discovered in Caesarea, a provincial capital during Pilate's term. It describes a building dedication from Pilate to Tiberius Caesar, and it's dated exactly the time frame listed in the Bible. We also have Pool of Bethesda, so our, our team that went to Israel recently, they might have seen it. You should go talk to them, they might have pictures. The Pool of Bethesda has been found, um, and it, but it was destroyed in 1870, and John was speaking as if it was still standing when he was writing, many would say. Uh, we have the Pool of Siloam. You could, I believe you can see that today. That's what was discovered in 2004. Also dated around the time of Jesus. And we um, have an ossuary box that has the bones of a 60-year-old man and, and his family, and it's found in 1990, and it's... Um, Dated right around the time of Jesus, and it has Caiaphas, the high priest, during Jesus' trial. And the last two, here's one that was in question many years. Well, did they actually practice crucifixion? All Christians are making that up. And then they found, dated in the first century, they found the bones of a guy named Yahokaimen um, in 1968, and a seven-inch nail um, right there um, embedded in the heel bone. So good confirmation. Um, the crucifixion did happen as the Bible describes. This was one that really excites me. Uh, as you know, in John 11, the Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was from Bethany. Now, he went and continued making disciples and went to Barnica, Cyprus. And the church is there today. And in the sarcophagus, this tomb, and it was found. Now, it was found in 890. If you look it up, that'll be the date given for an official finding of it. But he had, of course, planted this church. And what it says on his tomb, it says, uh, Lazarus, four days dead, friend of Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? We have confirmation. Lazarus is a real person. And what a cool tomb, stone um, inscription to have on there. Uh, man, and that's, that's, of course you're going to be marked for life if you come back from the dead. Um, <laughs> and find a church. I believe it's, um, God's going to do amazing things through your life. Uh, here's a close-up. I posted a video of this on our Facebook page, James Apologetics, if you want to see that. Um, so we have early testimony, eyewitness testimony, we have expected testimony. This is a very significant one. Paul referred to this in Acts 26. You believe in the prophets, right? And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but expected testimony, we mean prophecies referring to Jesus. They're expecting things to be fulfilled. And we have... You look at according to the scriptures.org, there's some numbers around 300 exact prophecies about Jesus. Now, here's a short list of ones that were very exact about Jesus. Seed of a woman, line of David, in Bethlehem, both God and man, visits the temple, 
dies in around 33 AD, some would say January 9, 24 points to that, and is a sacrifice for the people and will come back from the dead. And if I had one prophecy and a quick moment to share with someone, I would share Isaiah 53. Actually, I, I picked up someone in Uber who was a Jew, and they, were, they weren't sure. They said, oh, Isaiah 53, Christians wrote that later. And I was like, actually, the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrated that the, that the Isaiah 53 was dated before, it was written before the first century. Dead Sea Scrolls, large sum of Old Testament scriptures found together, and they date between uh, 1 to 2 BC, before Christ. <coughs> And it proves Christians didn't make this up. It's so good, you almost think it was rigged that we wrote it in later, but it's not. It's rigged by divine sovereignty that God, through, through man, spoke prophecies. Isaiah 53 is one of the best ones. And it's a bullseye of exactness um, pointing to Jesus. And here's a little close-up of the greater Isaiah scroll, not the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now what's amazing is, if I said to this group in here, I want everybody to just think of a story, go home, Write a story and come back. We're not going to have the same story. Someone's going to be talking about hunting, golfing, camping, um, ballet. It's not going to have a cohesive story. But yet, you have the, the storyline of the Bible um, written by 40 different authors around 1,600 years. It's a consistent storyline. You think of the Bible's unity in its story, like fulfillment of prophecies, is incredible. And it's a divine work of God that it came together the way it has. So we have expected testimony, expected prophecies, fulfill the divinely inspired word of God. The last one, which I, is, I find very fascinating, is we have extra-biblical testimony. This means it's as testimony outside of Scripture, but it's also verifying the events of Scripture, verifying the person of Jesus. Uh, we have uh, three here, one by Josephus, I'll share with you. Uh, it says, Josephus is a Jewish historian, and he was not a believer, so wouldn't have motivation to um, skew the facts. He's just reporting what is the known history. He says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become disciples did not abandon discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have counted wonders. And that was in Antiquities of the Jews, his writings. He has another work referring to James, the brother of Jesus, and his stoning. And these people are being confirmed through non-Christian writers and authors. We also have passages was a Roman historian, and he was he's not a fan of Christianity. Again, no reason to lie or make up the facts. He's just reporting. In his annals of AD 116, he describes Emperor Nero's response to the great fire in Rome, and Nero's claim, all the Christians did it. So he says, consequently, to get rid of the poor, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our procurators. Pontius Pilate, the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, but the first source of the evil, but in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So he's putting all of these historical figures in the crosshairs. And he's putting it here. No reason to make this up. 
and he lines up perfectly with the Bible. And the last one gives me chills. We have Africanus, another historian, quoting Thallus, who was in the first century, um, a Samaritan historian. And he said, On the whole world, there pressed the most fearful darkness, referring to the day that Jesus was crucified. It was a total darkness. Now, the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. Now, this darkness, Dallas, in his third book of history, calls, as appears to me, without reason, an eclipse of the sun. But he's trying to reason away. Why is there, is it just an eclipse? Of course, I think Africanus was a believer. But he says, Thallus and many other historians confirm there was total darkness. So we have a picture from all of these and many other um, extra-biblical sources, historians, government, and other sources. Here's the picture we get. Jesus lived in times of Tiberius Caesar, virtuous life, wonder worker, brother named James, claimed to be the Messiah, under Pontius Pilate, earthquake and eclipse, half of many died, crucified on the eve of the Passover. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. Disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly. His disciples denied the Roman gods. This all confirms the New Testament. Even if we only had the extra-biblical authors, we would still have to deal with, he's not just a man, he is God himself in the flesh. And this last one, as a quick point, sometimes I'll make with people, and they say, well, why would you be a Christian? How do we know that the disciples told the truth? A lot of times I would use this with people when I meet them in Uber, and I'll tell you, I've done over 4,000 Uber rides, actually probably five lift. Um, and one of the most common objections, besides science objections, the New Testament is corrupted. And if I have, I have 10 minutes left on the ride and they ask me, I'm going to probably use this example right here. Excruciating testimony, meaning coming from the crux to the cross. The testimony being, what would have motivated the disciples to lie about this story? There's at least three things that motivate every crime. Detective J. Warner Wallace said um, in his book, Cold Case Christianity, he says it's three things. It's either money, sex, or power. Now, did the disciples have any of these motivations? No. They were beaten, tortured, and killed. Most people wouldn't say, sign me up, unless it's the resurrected Jesus. To live is Christ and to die is gain, right? You could gain the whole world. They lose your soul and you says, you, you leave all that behind and find me, you'll find life. Right? Because Jesus is worth it. He's that good. That's why Nabil Qureshi, when he came to Christ, he said the cost is high, but it's totally worth it. A lot of his family rejected him. And that Muslims, why would they come to Christ unless the Christ is worth infinite treasure? And that is so true. We see, they have nothing to gain. They have every motive to say it didn't happen. See, many people will die for what they think to be true. Muslims die for what they think to be true. Muslim martyrs, 9-11. But who was in a greater position to know if Jesus actually raised from the dead? The disciples were. People will die for what they think to be true, but no one dies for a lie that they know is a lie. The disciples, we've seen, were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Messiah. So, real quick to remember these, we have early testimony, eyewitness, expected, extra-biblical testimony, and excruciating. We have one question to ask someone in each of these categories to continue the conversation. An early testimony, you could ask someone, when did you think the Gospels were written? One of the common answers I hear is, not in the first century. You can start that conversation with one question. Or you could ask, um, do you think they were written by eyewitnesses on the eyewitness point? Um, blank on the screen. Well, I can remember. So the expected testimony, you can ask them, uh, what do you think about Isaiah 53? Maybe we can get that one back up. Um, Isaiah 53, what do you think about Isaiah 53? And you can ask them about the extra-biblical um, authors. Um, 
You can even read a quote to them. I have one in my car sometimes. Uh, but you can have one of these quotes, you can pull it up on your phone, and you can just say, what do you think about that? My name is excruciating testimony. We'll get back to this one here. Excruciating testimony. Why would you die for a lie if you knew it was a lie? Why would the disciples die for a lie if the resurrection didn't happen? And so here's the end goal is you want to now ask people, hey, can I share with you my answer to these questions? You don't have to do all, all five of them or you can just share one of your answers and say, would you be interested in grabbing coffee to talk with me some more about this next week? Your goal is to boldly lead the conversation, confidently challenge them towards faith in Christ, and continue praying for your one. Praying for them to know Christ. Why? Because if Christianity is true, it's of infinite importance. If it's not true, it's not, it doesn't matter, right? The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's a quote by C.S. Lewis. See, yesterday, one thing that reminded us of is that life is short. Life is so short. We're not promised tomorrow. It's so short. It's so urgent. that there's, We can't risk not being bold, not being urgent with sharing the gospel with our one. We can't risk not being on our faces, pleading that others would know Christ and proclaim and know Him. And we don't have to be ashamed of this. We don't have to be ashamed of this word. We can confidently engage with others. We don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation to all leave. And it close with the prayer in our today. God, you are so good. You have spoken a perfect word. And we worship you. We praise you. That we can build our entire lives on the secure foundation of your word. How we know that bad ideas, bad worldviews have consequences as we have seen. God, we are broken for that. God, I pray that we God, out of our love for people, we would love people enough to boldly tell them the gospel, the one way they can be restored in relationship with you. God, I pray if there's anyone in here in this room today that have, has not repented of their sin and replaced their faith in Christ, God, they would do that. They would confess and cry out to you. Everyone who calls out to the name of the Lord will be saved. This is completely a gift, not by anything that we can do, but because of what Christ has done to secure our salvation. God, I pray that, that we would confidently engage with unbelievers we see them come to faith. One conversation, one seed plan at a time. God, we love you and we praise you for your perfect word and your perfect son and his life is given for us so that we may live. It's his name we pray. Amen. Amen.